0: This is the Unraveled podcast with hosts Kayla Baring and Nicole Richards. Join us as we unravel a new case every season. You are listening to season one, The Nightmare in Ada. I'm Kayla Baring.
1: I'm Nicole Richards.
0: And you're listening to Unraveled. In last week's episode, we wrapped up the preliminary hearing where at the end of all the evidence being presented, the judge decided there was enough evidence to proceed with charging Carl and Tommy with kidnapping and murder and set a trial date. And so what that left us with was time for Tommy and Carl's attorneys to do as much research as possible to try and prove their innocence and prove that the confession tapes were not true. And it also gave the district attorney time to continue searching for evidence that Denise Haraway was, in fact, dead, uh, which would make it much easier for them to prove some sort of a murder and maybe corroborate the tapes, the confession tapes, a little bit more than they already were. So we're going to focus mostly on what the defense attorneys were doing because they had a lot more to do, uh, than the district attorney.
1: Yeah. And they were pretty excited because there was a bit of time here. You know, they had tried to originally set the date very close and, and they were now given uh, some more time to be able to gather as much evidence as they could that was going to help debunk these confession tapes. They, this is what they were up against was really trying to, make these confession tapes be inadmissible would be ideal, but if not inadmissible, at least be able to really break down that these were not reliable confession tapes. And it also should be noted that Don Wyatt, who was the attorney for Tommy Ward, is really the attorney going forward who is gonna be doing the brunt of the work.
0: Yeah, so I think in past episodes, we've used moments like this to kind of just give people a little bit of information about our legal system. And I think there are some intricacies that really don't get shown on Law & Order. So Tommy Ward's family, like we said, went out and hired Don Wyatt, um, which was really a stretch for them. They certainly aren't a family that's made of money. And meanwhile, uh, Carl Fontenot, doesn't really have any family and doesn't have money and so he was forced to get a court appointed attorney and it wasn't a public defender but rather an attorney who was appointed by the court and given a stipend to handle the case and that stipend is a flat fee and it was something very low i think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of about two thousand or two thousand five hundred dollars which um is definitely nothing in this day and age and even back then for a criminal case, for a criminal attorney to handle a murder case that isn't a whole lot of money, just for the attorney to get a fee for the amount of time that they have to put in for the case. I mean, these attorneys have already been in trial at the preliminaries for, you know, over 5 full days that they were actually in court doing the case and and that's a lot of time for an attorney to be in court. So The moral of all of this that I'm saying is that there was no money left to hire an investigator. So that is really the reason that this is being left on the shoulders of Tommy's attorney. Because even though Carl's attorney has to represent him the best that he can, he can only represent him the best that he can with the resources that he has. And as a court-appointed attorney, he didn't have the resources to do in an investigation. And meanwhile, I think, uh, Nicole, you know, you mentioned Don Wyatt. I think even for Tommy's family, they were struggling to get enough money to Don Wyatt to pay for Don Wyatt's fees and to then pay an investigator to go out and, and try and investigate this crime.
1: Yeah. What we have read so far about, the, about their family is that they had to, you know, take second mortgages on houses and on land. And that even Don Wyatt's office was really feeling the crunch of their financial struggles. You know, he had really big plans of what an investigator needed to do. There was a lot of work ahead of him. He knew he was carrying the brunt of it, but he also was, you know, he wasn't going into this as a charity case. It was i I need to be paid for my time. I need to be able to pay an investigator and And the Ward family really struggled to get their finances together and And so, also, since they're being tried together, and if one, so if Don Wyatt is doing the work, then basically that what he is able to uncover during the investigation is be is able to be able to use to defend both of them. Is that is that how it goes?
0: Yeah, and and even if they weren't being tried together, I think that Carl's attorney would be relying on what came out of this investigation and that information Uh, but because they are being tried together this information is going to come out in Tommy's part of his defense so because they're being tried together the district attorney gets to go first and that's how it would happen in any case and then instead of one defense attorney putting on the defense for his client one of them goes and then the next one also gets to go and so here you're gonna once we get to the trial, I think what we're going to see is a lot of Carl's attorney relying on Don Wyatt not not necessarily because he's a bad attorney, but because he's in a position where he can't do anything else. Mm-hmm. On top of the fact that there isn't money for an investigator, both of these attorneys are in this really crappy position because usually, When you're coming into a case like this as an attorney, you at least have like a good deal of police work to go off of and to look at and to pick apart and to figure out where are the flaws, where are the problems, what do we really need to dig into? But they're walking into a case that has almost zero police work. The police work was getting Tommy and Carl to confess on tape, but not much else. I mean, even, you know, like we said, the, the one crime scene they have, McAnally's, because they don't have any other crime scene at this point. There's nothing there. Nothing was done by the police. They let them throw everything away. You know, there weren't even pictures taken of, like, where was the beer can? Where was the cigarette? You know, we when you and I talked about uh, what, it, what, what that did to the scene, we don't even know if that cigarette was facing Denise or facing some other unknown person um, who was there. We don't even know if Denise smokes, and those are the brand that she smokes. So they are coming into this at a huge disadvantage when they're going to get an investigator.
1: That's a great point. I hadn't really thought about the fact that going into a case, um, you rely so heavily on evidence that's been collected and what the you know these these vital parts that you can sort of pick apart and now here we are months and months and months down the road and they're going to try to gather a defense and they really the police work is questionable at the beginning but then once the confession tapes came the police work completely stopped they stopped looking for you know, actively pursuing um, folks who had also been identified or any other leads that they had. And we'll, we'll see this as we look at what the investigator uncovered is that, you know, other names were given, the connection to uh, crimes that look like this, all of these things that could have uncovered a lot more evidence for these attorneys, a lot more evidence that could have been helped, helpful in the defense – Everything sort of stopped once these, these tapes were made, and it was kind of, okay, we're done, you know, our, our police work is done, and, and never mind that pre the tapes, the police work was already um, weak, you know, there isn't a lot to go on from, from something like the crime scene where that should have been rich with information, we really have nothing.
0: Well, and the other thing, and I remember hearing this in another podcast, actually. I think it may have been the Undisclosed podcast, which was a podcast that came after Serial, but that it was about the Adnan Syed case, and now they've taken on another case. Um, And it's done by a few attorneys, and these attorneys were also interviewing someone who said the hardest client To uh, defend or investigate is an innocent client because they weren't there. They can't give you any information. If your client is actually innocent and had nothing to do with the crime at all, they're kind of useless to you. They can't give you any information of like I was there and this is what happened, but I didn't participate in like the big crime. You know, I I wanted to rob the liquor store, but I didn't abduct the the cashier or something along those lines but if you have a client who's completely innocent who wasn't even let's say at McAnally's that night and you say so just just tell me what happened and be honest and we'll see what we can do Mm -hmm. and the answer is I was at a party with Carl Fontenot we were out till three in the morning hanging out with friends and then I went home That doesn't help you at all. There's nothing that you can do with that as an attorney. Whereas, like, if they had actually been involved in some way, an attorney could do something with that.
1: And I would go as far as even for something like this case with Don Wyatt. He's not only up against that possibility, right, that Tommy wasn't, in fact, there. But then you have an individual who clearly is... um using a very sort of limited ability to understand the depth of trouble that he is in. And as a result of that, keeps coming up with these stories as a way of hopefully getting the police to get off of his back or be able to send him home, you know, Even when we talked about the preliminary hearing, his very last sort of ditch effort at making another confession in front of the judge where he says, oh, this is what actually happened because he was given some bad advice from an individual in jail. It's like I can't imagine from an attorney's perspective of trying to defend somebody who has given so many different kind of, you know, stories that don't add up and changing his stories and is there a dream? I can't imagine trying to to come up with a solid defense to that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, that creates this added trouble of not just trying to figure out what happened, but because Tommy has told so many stories, and even though he has immediately, you know, he immediately retracted his confession, uh, reiterating that that he had been saying it was a dream all along and it wasn't true. And pretty much immediately after telling the story at the preliminary hearing about Marty Ashley, he pretty quickly right after that says that isn't true. But now you've got his attorney not only trying to prove that Tommy didn't abduct and murder Denise Haraway, but also unsure about what, is and isn't true that tommy is telling him and then you know maybe running down wasting resources running down people who are more than likely not at all relevant like marty ashley Uh, so in just a minute we will get into what the investigator looked into and found while getting ready for the hearing So, Nicole, I do want to get into the investigation, but before we do that, I was thinking we could take just a minute here to talk to our listeners about the next season of Unraveled.
1: Yeah, we are looking for our next case.
0: Yeah, we're really hoping that our listeners have enjoyed listening to the show as much as we have enjoyed baking it. We're really hoping that we are bringing light to some different aspects of the criminal justice system while hopefully making it somewhat entertaining at the same time so that people want to come back and listen every week. And so we'd like to do this for you guys again.
1: And of course we could, you know, go to long lists of cases that we know would meet the criteria of what we're doing. But we're really looking to try to get input from a listener, somebody that enjoys listening to the podcast and is also curious about us putting our time and energy on a case that they're connected to, either because it's something that they know a lot about, they, it's something that they are personally involved with. The biggest challenge for us in doing this podcast was really um, being able to talk to individuals that were involved, being able to get documents, you know, uh, without a budget. So it would be nice if we could talk to somebody who has a case that could help us with that.
0: Yeah, so if you know somebody who has been put in jail and you think that their conviction is questionable uh, and would make for a good season on the Unraveled podcast, ideally something where you could provide us with a number of the court documents and things like that about the case that we could use in order to really pull apart the case and and get the information out there for people to find and to bring light to the case and see what people think about it uh, that would be ideal and you can get those to us by uh, ideally by emailing us unraveledpod at gmail.com we are also available on twitter at unraveled pod or you can tweet either one of us directly uh nicole is at unraveled nicole and i am at caleb aring so if you've got a case you think that we should cover let us know And with that, let's get back into this investigation. Uh, Nicole, so you mentioned that Don Wyatt is the one who went out and hired an investigator. And what did he task the investigator with finding out?
1: Well, he had several courses of action he wanted this investigator to, to look into. But the most significant and the ones that really popped out for us, I think, because they really follow what we've talked about in earlier episodes is that he first wanted him to research the disappearance of other Oklahoma convenience store clerks. And notably, the one in Seminole. And that his job was to find any similarities. And so we had talked about this earlier on. We had talked about the disappearance of Patty Hamilton, that she was taken from a convenience store in Seminole and that it was never looked into. And so that was his first task, was he needed to start looking at crimes that looked like this, but really focusing on the case of Patty Hamilton, because it was the most similar.
0: Yeah. And so that case, you know, we mentioned it really early on in the podcast, because I really think it was eerily similar. And when the investigator looked into it, he found a lot of the stuff that we've already mentioned um, both disappeared from convenience stores. They were never heard from again. There were never any. There was never any body found in either case. In both cases, there was money that was missing from the register, but it didn't seem like money had been the motive for what happened. It seemed unlikely that that robbery had been the motive in either one of these cases, based on how. They ultimately played out.
1: And that's really all that came of it. You know, the investigator in the Hamilton disappearance said that he had a belief that she could still be alive and that the two could be connected, but it was very unsure. So though that piece of information, those two cases are so eerily the same and it was a great place to start for this investigation, it really didn't... It didn't bring up much for us. It didn't, it didn't, there were no connections that these, that these two investigators were able to make that would get, be the missing link to bring these cases together.
0: So. Because they're similar, it's possible that a judge would allow the attorney to talk about this other case in. Uh, Tommy and Carl's hearing and try to insinuate basically that they're so similar that they must have been done by the same person or people so if you don't believe that Tommy and Carl um, kidnapped the clerk Patty Hamilton uh, then you can't also believe that they kidnapped and murdered Denise Haraway Um, but even though there are a ton of similarities he wasn't really able to pull out enough information where you would necessarily be able to get a jury to to go along with that and think that, that that's the case.
1: And I just wonder, and maybe you'll have some insight into this, that if you were to bring it up during the trial and say try to bring in this connection without any evidence that actually links them. Could the other side also say, well, this case had happened. You know, Tommy and Carl were both aware of this case. They had read about it. They heard about it. And they reenacted it in some sort of way. I mean, I feel like without any sort of really hard evidence that connects the two, it really could be used by either side, it almost feels like.
0: Yeah, and if there isn't enough evidence, you know the district attorney will object to bringing any information about it in, and they, you know, without very much evidence, it's it's pretty likely that a judge would agree that it shouldn't be brought in. So that that piece of the investigation isn't necessarily going to be helpful. So the next thing that uh, Don Wyatt wanted his investigator to look into was to interview any other potential suspects that might be out there. And this was really tricky because uh, suspects or witnesses, this was really tricky. You know what we were talking about earlier, Nicole, about how they didn't have much of a police report and uh, they didn't have much to go off of from Tommy or Carl because Either Tommy's making up all of these different stories or they weren't there at all. So they were kind of, uh, didn't have a whole lot to go off of. Uh, Don Wyatt really specifically wanted his investigator to focus on Marty Ashley. And you'll recall Marty Ashley came into the picture during the preliminary hearing uh, when Tommy decided that he had something to say and... He claimed that he had been at McAnally's, but he was with Marty Ashley, not Carl Fontenot, and that Denise ultimately decided to run off with Marty Ashley. Tommy did not join them in this and has no idea what happened. And Tommy claimed that this was a story that his cellmate had told him to tell and also gave him the name Marty Ashley, but... Don Wyatt decided that this would at least be, since he didn't really have any leads to follow, a lead worth following up on and seeing if there was any sort of kernel of truth to what Tommy had said and seeing if he could somehow fill in any pieces of the puzzle here. So the investigators tasked with trying to track down Marty Ashley, which turned out to be really, really difficult, um, even though this was one of the top things that Don Wyatt had asked him to do he had a lot of trouble tracking down Marty Ashley and he had to actually talk to over a half a dozen people just to finally try and locate him
1: so the investigator eventually ended up driving out to Paul's Valley and he had this address which was Marty Ashley's mother that was the closest that he could get and he actually parked himself out in front of Marty Ashley's mother's house, and he had been watching the house for a little less than an hour. When this man come out came out the front door and walked toward these walked toward the yard, and the investigator approached him and found out yes, it was in fact Marty Ashley. So he's he's finally able to find him, and Ashley agreed to answer questions. Um, they sat in the investigator's car and talked and. You know, Ashley said he'd already been questioned for a long, long time ago by Detective Dennis Smith and James Fox about Ward's story, that he had, in fact, run off with Denise Haraway. He said that he had given the detectives a recorded statement saying that this was totally false, that he had never been in any vehicle with Tommy Ward. He mentioned he had seen Ward riding on old pickup trucks from time to time, and he gave the investigator the names of several young men that they may have belonged to. So he was giving him information, like, yes, I know who he is. Yes, I've seen him in trucks. These are some of the people that I know he may have been with. And so this information would later be looked into by the investigator. He went on to explain that, you know, he didn't have a lot of friends, and he just wasn't around people very often, and with regards to Denise, he said that he had seen her working at McAnally's, but had not even known her name until she disappeared, and he made a joke that he wished he had run off with her, that she was very attractive, you know, and then that was kind of the end of their conversation, and and what we know is that the investigator at that point really felt that he was telling the truth, that it didn't, I mean, mind you, this is also coming from a story that Tommy immediately retracted. So we kind of knew it was probably not going to lead to much. But he did find him. He did talk to him. He got an information. And really the the biggest part that was gleaned from talking to him was – he was given more names that could then be looked into. Because it, as the investigation goes on, it's just kind of one person leading to another person leading to another person. And it's a very small town, so it just kind of moves that way. Like, oh, I know who he is. I know this is who he hung out with. Here are some more names. And so after that, that final visit with him, the investigator dropped the connection to Marty Ashley.
0: And another person that... Don Wyatt wanted the investigator to track down was someone named Willie Barnett, and most of the names that we're using in this episode aren't really important to remember because so much of this investigation just didn't add up to anything, but at one point Tommy had claimed that he had been asleep uh, napping for a good part of the day that Denise was kidnapped uh, before he went to the party that night, and uh, that his friend Willie Barnett would remember that he had been asleep napping because Willie had come over that day to see him and and, uh, Tommy had to be woken up in order to be visited by Willie Barnett. So eventually the investigator is able to track down Willie Barnett um, and the investigator says that it was really, really difficult getting this Willie person to talk about anything at all. Um, but that Willie says, yeah, he remembers that one time he went over to Tommy's house and that uh, Tommy was asleep. He had been taking a nap and it was probably maybe around 830 at night that Tommy was, wait- was taking a nap and he had to be woken up to uh, talk to Willie Barnett. And, you know, if you remember the timeline of what happened the night that, uh, Denise Haraway was kidnapped, um, she left the store around 830 at night. And so if this were the case that Willie Barnett had come over on the night that Denise Haraway was kidnapped, there's pretty much no way that it could have been Tommy, especially if we're assuming that whoever kidnapped denise is in fact the person who was at jp's right before that um because there's no way he could have been at jp's for two hours and then gone there or just i don't know ran home and pretended to be sleeping for two minutes right at the moment that this person happened to come over to his house (laughs) um But what ultimately comes of this is that Willie Barnett says, it might have been the night Denise Haraway was kidnapped. It might have been another night. I have no idea. I don't remember. And that's pretty much it. So it doesn't lead anywhere. It's a a really promising lead to begin with. And as he's saying what happened, it seems like it could be really useful. But at the end, it just fizzles out and isn't useful at all. And, you know, uh, Nicole mentioned it's a small town. People are being sent from one person to another person. And at one point, what comes into the mix is that another woman named Mildred Gandhi actually claims that she saw Denise with two men uh, staying with them at the trailer park that she lives in. Um, and so that seemed like a really, really important lead to follow up that someone claimed to have seen Denise After she disappeared. And so it takes a little time. But he does eventually connect with Mildred Gandy. And Nicole. What does he find out from her?
1: Well he. They have a lengthy discussion. And it goes on to basically say that. You know Gandy feels that. She had seen Denise. In the doorway of this trailer number 95. At this trailer park. And that it was five weeks before she had gone missing. So she does say that she can confirm, or she feels very, very reasonable, you know, she feels reasonably sure that she saw Denise Haraway at this trailer park. She says that also on the day that she had seen Denise in the trailer park, there's an old model Chevy pickup truck that's dull gray in color there. So that kind of brings us a truck piece. So this sounds promising at first. Um, She goes on to then talk about a little bit of who was, you know, who was living in that trailer. And she says that very shortly after Denise went missing, the individuals that were in trailer number 95 also moved out. So she, there's this connection of, of their people, Denise being there, and that these people she had been there to see quickly moved out after Denise had gone missing, Um she is starts to get a little shaky on the dates. At first, she agreed it was after the disappearance that she had seen Denise, and then she figured out it was actually before the disappearance. So, you know, the investigator at this point feels like yes, Yandy definitely definitely believes that she saw Denise Harroway in the trailer park, before the disappearance, but he does not feel sure that she would be able to stand up in court and say this. And so though he is, um, you know, though he feels like she's sure of it, he's very clear that we're not going to be able to use this. We're not going to be able to use this individual and bring her into the courtroom because she is, a, she's just too shaky on dates. She's just too shaky.
0: You know, uh, I... It- I would I would still want to see her in court, even if she didn't see Denise after the disappearance. If she saw Denise before the disappearance with two men and they had a pickup truck that matches the description of the pickup truck in question. Now, granted, you and I don't necessarily believe that there were two men who abducted Denise. Uh, that The two men comes from JPs and I think that that's kind of a red herring that has been followed in this case for way too long. Uh, but as an attorney, if you know what story the government is going to tell, that's the story that you have to fight. And so if the district attorney is set that this is two people who abducted her in this you know, old model pickup truck and you have a woman who saw her with two people and an old model pickup truck, whether it was before or after. I mean, you've also got this beer and this cigarette so you can kind of gleam that maybe she knew the person who abducted her. So I would, as an attorney, I would run with that whether it was before or after and at least use it to plant some seeds of doubt that, hey, maybe there's somebody else who has a pickup truck. Well, because, Tommy and Carl don't even have the pickup yeah, they don't truck. don't have a pickup truck. So maybe there's somebody else who actually knew Denise and who has a pickup truck.
1: And I think it's these moments that really could piece together a more solid story of who Denise Haraway was. There's just this kind of perception that she wouldn't have run off. She wouldn't have left her life, wouldn't have left her family. And yes, those pieces do make sense when, you know, logically. But when I hear of this kind of, these bits of information where it was like, why was Denise at that trailer park? Why? So, like you had said, whether it was before or after, what placed her there? You know, did her husband know that she had friends living at that trailer park? Let's find out who these people are that were in trailer park number 95, the one that she was seen in that moved out quickly after her disappearance. Well, where did they go? Who were they? You yeah. know, it's all of these bits of information that. Here's this woman who is sure she saw her. She's very shaky on the date, so she's not a credible witness in the court. But she still is offering this window into what else was Denise doing? You know, the police didn't look into her friends, didn't look into um, her husband, didn't look into these people that were surrounding her. We had talked way back in an earlier episode when we talked to the investigator who said, when somebody goes missing, that's the first place you start, You right? You start with the husband, you start with these person's friends and where were they what were they doing what did their lives consist of and i think that denise was always just kind of banked as like oh she was a student and she was responsible and she was just kind of your average young woman and there's no way she would have done anything um out of the ordinary and i i think that's a i think that's a naive perception of somebody that there there's probably there's always more to people than what we think
0: well and and we're not saying that like you know that she was doing that. First off, we aren't saying that she was even necessarily in this trailer park, even though this woman believes she saw her or that if she was, she was doing something that maybe wasn't kosher um, or that anyone close to her had anything to do with what happened, but it was never looked into. And, and statistically speaking, it usually is, someone who's close to you. And there usually is more than meets the eye to what's going on. And that was just, it, it was never even considered as a possibility, let alone investigated at all, um, which makes things really difficult. So, you know, Mildred Gandy doesn't end up being very useful. I mean, I personally believe that if if I were handling this case, that's probably something I would have used. But ultimately the investigator and Don Wyatt didn't seem to think that it was super useful Uh, but on top of that while looking for Mildred Gandy the investigator ended up talking to the manager of the trailer park um, and she also claimed that she believed that two men who lived in her trailer park um, matched the drawings the sketches that people were claiming that Tommy and perhaps Carl matched. Um, And, you know, again, Nicole and I have agreed many times that those sketches don't seem particularly relevant. They seem relevant to finding out who was hanging out at J.P.'s. Uh, They don't seem relevant to finding out what happened to Denise Haraway. But again, as the defense attorney, you have to fight whatever story that the government is telling. And in this case, the story is that two men were at J.P.'s and then... They went to, uh, and then they went to McAnaly's. And so if I had someone who was saying, hey, two men that live in my trailer park, a trailer park where someone claims to have seen Denise with two men, that they match these sketches. I mean, I would run with that. And I'm not 100% sure why the investigator doesn't. I know that it seems like a, a lot of rabbit holes are being opened up, but it seems like these might have been rabbit holes to follow up on a little bit more
1: and bringing us even back to those sketches another person the investigator was to go and speak to was going to be karen wise now karen wise was the the individual who was the clerk at jp's and she supposedly had told Vicki jenkins that she was unsure of of the information she had given the police she was unsure of of the information that was used to make these composite sketches. And so the investigator went on to interview Vicki Jenkins. And, of course, in an interesting turn of events, she, um, you know, he, Vicki Jenkins had said, Karen Wise told me that she was unsure of this, that, you know, she was questioning what she had done. She was really upset. And when the investigator went to go talk to Miss Jenkins, um, Vicki denied all of this. And she said that Karen Wise had never said anything about her being unsure of these identifications and it just sort of dropped. And in and, and that's I think in investigation work what must be really frustrating. You you get information, it goes one way, you try to talk to an individual and the story completely changes and and we don't really know why Vicky said, you know, she had, she had not heard this, but that's how it was left and The investigator tried to reach Karen, Um, you know, he had left messages for her, JPs, um, that he had just, he had really tried to be able to find her, and unfortunately it just wasn't, you know, people that were deeply involved in this case. Now so much time has passed and there has been so much impact on people's lives and being so, you know, being so connected to this case and living in such a small town that a lot of folks were leaving. Folks were leaving Ada at this point. And so it it made for a more challenging job for this investigator.
0: And and we've tried to look up and contact some people too. And I mean, folks were leaving Ada and were hard to find back in 19... uh, Eighty four and 1985 right after this happened. So in 2016, we've had a real struggle just trying to reach out to people and contact people. We haven't been able to find Karen Wise to try and follow up on any of what happened. And then a lot of these other people, there's so little information about them because they weren't really included in the case that we weren't able to follow up with them either. And so there was one more really important thing that Don Wyatt wanted this investigator to look into, and that was the pickup truck. You know, we've, we've talked at length, Nicole and I, about how this, this pickup truck... At least as far as Tommy and Carl are concerned, it doesn't exist in their lives. They don't have a pickup truck. They don't have access to a pickup truck. The whole way that this story worked when the cops got this confession was that the pickup truck belonged to Odell Titsworth. And now the cops are saying that Odell Titsworth didn't do it. So I think Don Wyatt thought that if the investigator could somehow track down this pickup truck, and frankly, the description of the pickup truck is so vague that it's it's a huge task to ask. Uh, but maybe if they could track down the pickup truck, they could somehow prove that in no way, shape, or form was it related to Tommy and Carl. Or I think at this point, Don Wyatt is even open to the fact that maybe Tommy and Carl did have something to do with it, but there was some other main person who wasn't Odell Titsworth. Um, because I think at this point, Don Wyatt is really at a loss for what happened, too. Because he doesn't know what to believe be- between the stories that Tommy is telling and the fact that it is a really shaky case on the part of the district attorney.
1: Yeah, I mean, as we're getting to the end of the investigation, and so many names are given and, and so much um, sort of false starts happen during this investigation. That to speak of all of them would would I think do nothing but offer more confusion as a listener. But just knowing that you know the investigation is going on, this truck is not turning up. Lots of new names have been given. Lots of uh, stones have still remained unturned. That there's only so much time and resources that this this law firm has and that they're really they're not getting anywhere moving into the trial of of anything that is concrete right there's no yes we found the truck yes it belongs to these two people yes you know something something that just without a doubt connects other individuals to this crime or if nothing else plants a seed of doubt that is big enough that says okay Tommy and Carl can't be the people And I think going forward is that that's all really Don Wyatt can do at this point. Is Maybe he can't prove who did it. Maybe he can't crack the case. Maybe the investigation is never going to uncover who is responsible. But at least what he can do is put enough doubt into the jury that they cannot convict these individuals um, to be found guilty because this is, again, it's a death penalty case. Moving forward, you know, you have to be sure without a reasonable doubt that this, these two individuals did this. And I think that all that Don Wyatt going in can say is, you know, I hope that I can put enough doubt in the jury's mind to not have this happen.
0: Absolutely. And there's one other thing that happens during the investigation, and that is that uh, Tommy's family gets the person who cuts Tommy's hair to go in and talk to Don Wyatt as well uh, about, well, about Tommy's hair. And you know, we, we mentioned early on uh, when we were talking about the sketches that one thing of note when Tommy went in and was questioned by the police was that his hair was significantly shorter. Than it was in the sketches, and I think the police even took a picture at that time uh, because of that fact, and and you know they were basically like, oh well, his haircut was really choppy, so he probably just like cut his hair off himself after abducting Denise because he didn't want to look like the sketches, um, but. This woman who cuts Tommy's hair for him went in to, to Don Wyatt just to let him know, I cut Tommy's hair short on April 20th, uh, which was eight days before Denise Haraway disappeared. And she was sure that she had cut his hair on that day and that there was no way that his hair would have been the length that it was in this sketch that had been made up that, that people said looked like Tommy. Um, and that's kind of where it's at with the investigation. That is where Don Wyatt is able to get with it. In the meantime, the district attorney and the police still have been unable to find a body. So they are going into a murder trial, trying not only to prove who killed Denise, because usually in a murder trial, you know that someone is dead and all you have to do is prove who did it. But the district attorney has to also prove that she's dead because they don't actually have
1: any, any evidence. They don't
0: have anything beyond the circumstantial evidence that we talked about in the preliminary hearing uh, to show that that Denise is no longer alive.
1: Yeah, I mean it's quite the case going into it, and and you know I'm sure tensions are high for everyone and. And and moving into a case like this, you know, both sides are feeling optimistic, right? Uh, The district attorney's office is optimistic that because of his confession tapes, um, they've got this in the bag. And I think Don Wyatt, moving forward, and his associates are are hopeful that they are going to be able to plant this seed of doubt. And, you know, like everything in this this case... um, things never quite go what feels like the logical next step it never quite feels like uh, we're we're on par with that
0: so that is all for the investigation episode In next week's episode, we're going to start talking about the trial, and we found the way that we went over the preliminary trial going witness by witness, um, we're not sure if that was maybe the best way to go through it. We found that it might have been a little bit too detail intense for people, and we want to make sure... We want to give a lot of information in the podcast so that people know what's going on, but we also want it to be entertaining enough that you want to come back and listen the next week. Uh, So with the actual trial, I think we're really just going to try to hit the highlights, um, talk about the big stuff that happened, and not spend a whole lot of time on the smaller things that happened during the trials. Um, Do you have anything to add to that, Nicole? Yeah, I
1: agree. I think... I think with a trial, especially trying to give information that feels pertinent, um, you know, this information can get kind of dry. I think it can it can go on for a long time, and I think moving forward into the trial, there's some big points that are that are the the meat of it to get across what happens in this trial, which is rather surprising. But we don't need to go into great detail of every person that is called into questioning. You know, we're just going to kind of. Give you the lay of what happened, because because there's so much more to this story, even after the trial ends, right? Like, the trial ends, and we are not We don't not want done. to give
0: too many spoilers, no. but there is more after the trial, for sure. It does not end there, as... As you can probably imagine in a case where we don't even have a body going into the trial. But what you can look forward to next week is us talking about the trial and um, hitting the highlights and not droning on too much about the parts that aren't quite as interesting. So have a great week and we will see you then. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Unraveled, Season 1, The Ada. Your hosts are Nicole Richards and Caleb Aring. Producing, mixing, and editing done by Caleb Aring and Matt Van Horn. Music by Broke for Free. Voice talent by Joe Eager. Tune in next week to listen to more of this case unravel.